Donald Trump. Will you support him? Well, uh, to be perfectly candid with you, Jake, uh, I'm just not ready to do that at this point. I'm not there right now. Uh, but you are now. So many clowns. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. So many jokers from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the broadcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And yes, coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, Radio Monterey.com and yes, five days a week, blanketing planet Earth on Radio Sputnik. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling, action-packed adventure. Uh, boy, oh boy, uh, Paul Ryan, that was, if you heard that opening quote there, that was just days ago. I think it was, uh, Desi Doyne, what was that, beginning of May? That, that was uh, uh, May 5th that Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, said that he was just not ready to endorse not ready, Donald Trump. Not ready. Just not ready. Uh, but I guess now he is. Uh, and of course... Times change. Yes, uh, they do. Well, and of course, we told you uh, weeks ago that, of course, Paul Ryan would be coming on board, just like all of the other Republicans, just like the Republican leadership, just like the Republican voters. Yeah, there may be a few uh, holdouts, you know, Jeb Bush, but he's low energy. So we expect that. But... Uh, they're all coming on board. And so, you know, Democrats who think that uh, this uh, race against Donald Trump is going to be a cakewalk continue to kid themselves, which also continues to make me wonder um, when they you know, say that Hillary Clinton is our best chance against Donald Trump. I don't know where they're getting that idea. The math does not bear that out, but we'll get to that in a moment. Paul Ryan uh, in a uh, just before air here in the Janesville Gazette. This is his hometown paper, Janesville, Wisconsin. Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, writes about Donald Trump. I'll be voting for him this fall. He said it's no secret that he and I have our differences. I won't pretend otherwise. Well, you will pretend otherwise, actually, uh, Paul Ryan. You have been pretending otherwise. Your uh, endorsement theater has been going on for uh, for a number of months. And, of course, we all knew how it would end in any case. In any case, he says, I won't pretend otherwise. And when I feel the need to, I'll continue to speak my mind. But the reality is on the issues that make up our agenda. He's talking about the Republican U.S. House agenda. 
We have more common ground than disagreement with Donald Trump. He says, for me, it's a question of how to move ahead on the ideas that I and my House colleagues have invested so much in through the years. It's not just a choice of two people, but of two visions for America. He's comparing the Republican vision to the Democratic vision. He says, and House Republicans are helping shape that Republican vision by offering a bold policy agenda, by offering a better way ahead. Donald Trump can help us make it a reality. So uh, he's in. He's all in for Donald Trump. Not really a surprise, is it? No, I was. I'm actually <laughs> the only thing that's a surprise is that it uh, was this soon. I, I thought he would hold out at least a little bit longer well, before ra- raising the white flag. Uh, he would he would pretend at least for yes. a few more months. <clears throat> well, no, the pretending is over. Uh, Steve Bennon over at MSNBC also thought, uh, as you did, Desi Doyen, that uh, there would be. He'd pretend a little bit longer. Uh, Benin writes uh, about Ryan, you know, saying that he's not ready. He's just not ready. He's going to meet with him. He's going to talk to him. He's going to figure out if there's a way, if they can find themselves somehow coming together on this. Um, Benin writes uh, that uh, with Ryan uh, stuck in the corner he'd put himself in, Ryan tried to buy some time, saying four weeks ago he wasn't yet ready to back Trump and insisting he wanted to hear more from the candidate before making a final decision. The hope, obviously, was that the GOP candidate entering the general election would put some distance between himself and the buffoonish persona that Ryan repeatedly condemned over and over and over. And then uh, soon after those comments from Paul Ryan, uh, Ben in notes, Trump started peddling Vince Foster conspiracy theories, called for more guns in school classrooms, got caught lying about money for uh, for veterans charities, falsely attacked a federal judge for being Mexican. Uh, This is the judge who's overseeing uh, one of the uh, uh, lawsuits against the uh, fraudulent Trump University uh, called the judge Mexican, even though he was born in Indiana. Uh, He went after the uh, Trump went after the Republican Governors Association chair, Susana Martinez, the Republican governor of New Mexico, because she hurt his feelings. Apparently, Paul Ryan saw all of this unfold and then decided to endorse Donald Trump, Bennon notes. Why? Probably because the speaker realized that if he waited for the day in which Trump adopted a mature and responsible posture, Ryan would be waiting for a very, very long time. (sighs) Bennon writes, I don't know if it's the most pathetic development in Republican politics this year, but it's close, he writes. Yes, and that's a uh, a very uh, high bar uh, to meet, the most pathetic development in Republican politics this year. Uh, Just amazing, but we all saw it coming, so I really should not be amazed. Uh, And yes, Donald Trump really is a pathetic Candidate. I don't want to say candidate, a pathetic uh, politician, the things he says, the things he does. But he's quite a good candidate. He is quite a good candidate, no matter what it is that he says. And we'll have another example of that a little bit later in the program uh, with our Green News report, our latest Green News report. Desi, you'll be back for that. Yay. Uh, As uh, you describe it, Donald Trump versus reality (laughs) in uh, in an energy speech. An amazing, you know. 
And I feel for you, Desi Doyen, because you had to sit through all of those energy that he gave an energy speech over uh, the holiday weekend. Yep. He uh, talked about the drought out here in California. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, normally you can pull out a sound clip of somebody saying something uh, smart or stupid or otherwise. But his rambling unintelligible nonsense that went on for like an hour and a half in uh, in his energy speech and in these rallies I feel for you oh my trying goodness. to yes. even pull anything out of that he is a non-linear thinker he is a non-linear a nice way to speaker put it. yes yeah. he, it, he won't even finish his own sentences and before another thought runs like a squirrel across his brain he's like the dog from the movie that goes squirrel yeah and then has to go chase after it yeah and so you can't so you know and so I I feel for the media, frankly, uh, the corporate media in trying to report on Donald Trump because he says so much stuff that is so ridiculous. And just as they uh, figure out a way to report on what he said that was so ridiculous, he says something else ridiculous and stupid. And it's on to the next issue. It very much reminds me of what happened during the George W. Bush era. And not because of the uh, stupidity of that administration, but because of the scandals, uh, one after another after another, so much so that it was the scandals protecting them from the scandals. From scrutiny. Yeah. Be yeah. Because you couldn't keep up. Same thing here. You can't keep up with his stupidity. And I suppose he likes it that way. It's working well for him. Uh, although in, uh, what was this one... Um, you, you showed me this headline, uh, Desi, about his energy speech. Trump promises everything but the unicorn. Yeah. He's going, he's solved. Global warming, solved. The drought here in California, solved. It's all done. And people believe it. People buy it. They hear it. They buy it. They believe it, particularly since they are so poorly educated about what is actually going on in our on our planet, in our world, in our country. Um, he's able to get away with this. Because we have a crap media and because uh, Donald Trump just keeps saying stuff so that it's impossible to keep up. He knows how to play the media. His excuse, his his claim about the California drought is amazing. To me, <laughs> it is mind blowing. We will. I don't want to give it away. But his reason that he said he says there's no really there's no drought out here in California even though the majority of the state is still suffering under uh, extreme and severe a drought, a record drought. Uh, he says there's not a drought at all, and the reason he says there's not a drought at all will blow your mind. That will come up a little bit later in our Green News report. Uh, all right, let me get to a couple of quick items. I know our guest is standing by, uh, but we've got a, a little bit more polling now in advance of the uh, uh, the primaries next Tuesday in California, North Dakota, South Dakota, New Mexico, Montana, and New Jersey. There we go. Got them all by uh, memory. Anyway, uh, some more uh, polling that underscores what we have seen already. Yesterday, I reported on the NBC News Marist poll, finding that uh, essentially Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders are tied, are neck and neck. She's up just by two points now of likely Democratic primary voters in California. But out here, you don't have to be a Democrat if you're a declined to state, a no party preference voter, as we now call them in California. You can vote in the Democratic primary on Tuesday in California if you ask for a Democratic crossover ballot. 
And that NBC News Marist poll found that actually uh, Bernie Sanders was leading Hillary Clinton by one point among the wider electorate uh, of potential Democratic voters in California. Now the field poll which is uh, considered the gold standard for polling out here in California, has come out with similar numbers showing uh, the race, uh, showing Clinton up by two. That's within the margin of error as well. So we've seen in the last uh, four polls that are out here in California, Clinton within the margin of error uh, leading by two, actually in three out of four of those uh, polls among Democratic voters. Um, they don't that the, the lead by two does not necessarily take in the no party preference voters. So we will see what happens on Tuesday in California. In the meantime, uh, that same field poll uh, shows a Trump trailing Clinton by 19 points in California. Not a big surprise that uh, she's ahead by 19 points above uh, Donald Trump here in the state of California, here in very blue, very Democratic-leaning California. So she's got, uh, she's got Trump taken care of in California by 19 points. However, that same field poll shows Bernie Sanders beating Donald Trump by 29 points. And uh, that is similar to what... So that was the field poll. That was similar to the Marist poll. That Marist poll uh, indeed shows him shows her ahead of Trump by 24 points in California, according to the Marist poll. That is excellent. Until you look how Bernie Sanders is doing, he defeats Donald Trump by 34 points in California. Marist adds that is mostly because of Sanders' strength among independent voters. Independent voters who will be very important to the presidential election, the general election this November across the country. Uh, Nonetheless, the argument continues to be made that Hillary Clinton uh, will somehow be uh, better against Donald Trump than Bernie Sanders will be. Again, I don't know where that comes from. That could <clears throat> that could be true. But uh, the math that we have, the numbers that we have, the facts that we have simply continue in poll after poll after poll to not bear that out. So them's the facts. Uh, OK, we're going to take a quick break and come back with more facts uh, and a story that absolutely, frankly, outrages me. That said... Uh, it's not that difficult to outrage me, apparently, these days. Quick break, and we are back with more Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. It's all right. 
Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. A few months ago on this program, we reported on the Republican-controlled Public Utilities Commission in the state of Nevada after they had suddenly uh, changed their rules for how rooftop solar owners would be paid for the excess clean renewable electricity that their solar panels generated and then that they sell back to the state's monopoly electric utility called NV Energy. The decision in Nevada made by appointees and lobbyists close to the state's Republican governor, Brian Sandoval, effectively killed the rooftop solar industry in very, very sunny Nevada. Private companies like uh, Solar City and Sunrun were forced to lay off hundreds of workers and effectively pull up their roots and leave the state entirely after this sudden policy change made it too expensive for new customers to go solar. The change in pricing for what is called net metering, the way solar companies are paid, uh, rather solar customers are paid for their electricity they generate and sell back to the big utility companies on the power grid, meant that residential customers who had invested tens of thousands in solar panels, uh, tens of thousands of dollars to buy these panels were essentially screwed, unable to recoup their investment. Solar advocates and companies in Nevada are still now fighting to at least try to grandfather existing solar cu- uh, customers to get the same rate that they were originally promised when they signed up for the program. But the Brookings Institution recently reported that the fallout in Nevada has meant that new residential solar installation permits plunged 92%, 92% in Nevada in the first quarter of 2016. The Nevada disaster came about after uh, months of the state's Republican governor encouraging folks to go solar in the state. The solar industry had been booming in Nevada before the new policy effectively killed small entrepreneurial businesses and the localist of local control with big government restrictions on that free market. But while we know that Republicans have long been hypocritical on such matters, it should be noted, and it will be noted, that Democrats, in many cases, are not much better. And this problem is not restricted to only Nevada. It's a fight that's now occurring all over the country, even here in democratically controlled California, as utility companies try to hang on to their monopoly strangleholds over power generation. Over the weekend, as I was traveling through the desert uh, uh, during the Memorial Day holiday, I was briefly uh, in in similarly very, very, very sunny Palm Springs, where I happened to pick up a copy of the Desert Sun newspaper out there, and they had a front-page story about how residents in the area, known as the Imperial Irrigation District, are now also being screwed by new restrictions on net metering that is leaving residents stranded with tens of thousands of dollars in solar panel investments uh, as a local utility company out there has changed the rules midstream, essentially, and Democrats in the state legislature who have, for unknown reasons, abandoned a bill that would have corrected this problem. As Sammy Roth of the Desert Sun reported, bad news for Imperial Irrigation District customers hoping to go solar. State lawmakers killed a bill late last week that would have forced the agency to reopen its net metering program. Clean energy advocates were stunned 
when the district abruptly shuttered the program in February, which critics said would make rooftop solar too expensive for all but the wealthiest families. District officials closed the program to new applicants, even though hundreds of Coachella and Imperial Valley residents, this is up in Palm Springs, um, were waiting in line to sign up. This included many who had solar panels already on their roofs, ready to be switched on. Those homes are now stuck in limbo, unsure whether they can afford to go solar or whether the district will give them permission to activate their systems at all. Assembly Bill 2339 out here in California would have required that district to let thousands of more customers enroll in net metering, which compensates solar-powered homes and businesses for the electricity that they generate. But the Assembly's powerful Appropriations Committee quietly pocketed the bill rather than advance it to the full Assembly late last week. This was on Friday before the long holiday weekend, by the way, that this happened. They did not reveal which lawmakers objected to the legislation or why. But remember, again, this is California. This is a democratically controlled assembly. The bill's failure, the paper reports, added insult to injury for eastern Coachella Valley residents like Dean Moffaty, who had solar panels installed on his uh, La Quinta home in November but still hasn't been approved for net metering without compensation His panels, he says, are, quote, absolutely worthless. Quote, we're out about $40,000, he said. We're trying to improve our home and help the environment, and we're getting kind of kicked in the face. It's not clear why Appropriations Committee Chair Lorenzo Gonzalez, I should say Lorena, uh, Lorena Gonzalez, a Democrat from San Diego, Lorena Gonzalez, it's not clear why she announced on Friday that the uh, Assembly Bill 2339 would remain in the suspense file, which is essentially legislative death. The solar bill has faced opposition, uh, uh, predictably, from the utility industry as well as organized labor, which prefers large-scale solar development to rooftop solar, because most uh, jobs building large-scale solar farms are unionized, while rooftop solar jobs are not. That bill would have served as a lifeline to those homes and businesses. Instead, some of those customers face the unpleasant choice of sticking with solar and possibly losing money or else trying to get out of their contracts with solar installers. The sudden end to net metering, the paper writes, has wreaked havoc for the solar industry. Some local installers are telling potential customers it doesn't make financial sense for them to go solar. Uh, one company out in uh, in the desert there, in Palm Desert, was forced to fire a dozen employees. And uh, Imperial Irrigation District officials say, this is what they claim, that while they support rooftop solar, net metering forces homes and businesses without solar panels to subsidize their solar-powered neighbors. Like many utilities, the district has argued if it loses too much money, uh, too much revenue from consumers going solar, it will ultimately have no choice but to charge non-solar customers more so it can afford to keep the grid running for everyone. But a growing body of research, you'll be shocked to learn, says that those claims by the Imperial Irrigation District are, by and large, nonsense. Uh, Research now suggests non-solar customers are not subsidizing their neighbors' solar panels at all. In fact, they may be benefiting from those systems. One of those bodies researching this issue right now is the Brookings Institution. 
which recently released a paper on rooftop solar, finding that its benefits outweigh its costs. Here to discuss that report and what the hell is going on in Nevada, in uh, Palm Desert out here in California, and in other states around the country is Mark Muro, the co-author of that study. Mark is a senior fellow and policy director for Metropolitan for the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institution where he manages the program's public policy analysis and leads key policy research projects into the challenges faced by metropolitan areas. He was a former editorial writer at the Arizona Daily Star and a former staff reporter at the Boston Globe. Mark Muro, sir, welcome to the broadcast. Hey, Brad, great to meet you. How you doing? I'm doing okay, uh, although i, I got to say I'm really disturbed by these reports. You know, on this program, we cover a lot of problems with the climate uh, around the planet that are, frankly, underreported in the corporate mainstream media. And here we have a solution, uh, at, at least to a certain amount, with uh, rooftop solar, and we've got... Now, frankly, Republicans and Democrats alike stymieing uh, this effort, and it's really disturbing. So I want to ask you some questions, what you found in in your recent paper, which was very interesting. Uh, First, have I described net metering correctly? And and, and why is net metering necessary to encourage the spread of solar uh, with these rooftop solar programs? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you have it basically right. Net, Net metering allows households to sell excess solar energy that they generate Mm -hmm. uh, back onto the grid and back to to the utility because their use will vary. Uh, 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 So it's a necessary, uh, at least for now, necessary policy. Um, And I think what we're seeing, for one thing, in in the Nevada uh, case, Mm Or several points. First, policy matters. It really matters uh, how how you structure this. Net metering is, for now, necessary uh, to to continue encouraging uh, uh, rooftop. And when you mess around with with the the policy, you can have unforeseen uh, uh, problems. And and what I think. I think in some ways the backlash or complications here are even worse than you say in that not only has uh, the uncertainty created by uh, the Nevada uh, decision, uh, you know, absolutely uh, shut down uh, solar installation in in uh, Nevada, but it's also been part of a chilling nationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the first quarter of this year, there uh, there's been for no uh, apparent reason, uh, a a massive uh, slowdown in uh, uh, permitting and installation. So I think the uncertainty that is created here, and especially the retroactive effect in Nevada, where the PUC actually uh, uh, suggested that it would not grandfather in those who have invested in solar in past years, it's created a real question mark uh, nationally for uh, uh, homeowners. And so I think we, we do have a problem. Uh, installation depends on stable policy. 
and policy is now looking instable, and that is making homeowners nervous. Oh, I'm sure it is. I mean, you know, we cover these stories. We talk about these people who have invested, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars in panels, yeah. only to find out that the policy has changed on them, and they are uh, they're out of luck. Uh, now, you, I want to figure out why this is happening, though. Your new study uh, at Brookings it finds that despite claim, and you looked at a bunch of studies that were done in states all around the country to figure out the the cost benefits and so forth of net metering. So you find that despite claims to the contrary from these big uh, utility companies that, uh, quote, rooftop solar actually provides a net benefit to energy consumers as a whole rather than a cost. So first, let me ask you, what is it that the utility companies are claiming is the problem here? Why are they claiming that uh, they need to change the costs, do away with net metering altogether, or change the uh, the pricing they're willing to pay to solar customers? What is their claim? And then we can discuss if there's any uh, legitimacy to it. Well, I'll take the, the, the reality first. In time... Mm-hmm. At high levels of solar penetration, home home, uh, solar generation penetration, this is a threat certainly to the relationship that utilities have with homeowners, and it is a threat ultimately to the utility business model that is based on on selling uh, its own electricity. So I think that is part of the motivation. Meanwhile, uh, well, that's a threat to their profit motive, right? That's not yeah, a threat. Yeah. They, they make claims, as I as I've heard them, you know, uh, that uh, solar customers are getting a free ride, that they are, you know, including wear and tear on the grid when they sell back yeah. their electricity, but they're not paying for that wear and tear. Is is that a legitimate claim? That well, the mo- so the motivation I think we, we we can see, and there are some genuine challenges to the utility business model that need to be worked out, so that utilities, which are important, can uh, have a business while allowing for choice and allowing for uh, accelerated uptake uh, of renewables. What is not true, our research shows, is that at current levels of solar penetration that this is a cost sh- shift. Uh, it, does, it is not, and, it, and that is because solar uh, deployment through net metering uh, by individual households, in fact, is reducing uh, wear and tear on the overall system, in some cases helping to avoid necessary infrastructure or generation investments, and in, in fact, is technically valuable for the overall grid. So we do think that it's a canard to say that there's this huge shift of cost to non-solar people. If anything, solar households uh, are are benefiting the grid. And what we did, we looked at the recent cost-benefit analyses that are being done uh, by states and their PUCs. And at least six of the of ten, mm-hmm. you know, show this quite clearly. If you quantify in all of the benefits, including also benefits to the to the environment and so on, reduced carbon emissions and so on, this is a net 
benefit at current installation levels. Now, that's a uh, you say that solar households are benefiting the grid. Does that mean that that benefit uh, also uh, goes to non-solar owners? Yeah. One of the claims here is that uh, uh, you know that that this is costing non-solar. The people who can't afford to go solar are somehow going to pay uh, more money. Uh, I mean, what is it that they are claiming that non-solar residents would have to face if rooftop solar continues to proliferate? If anything, the cost shift runs the other way. I mean, at minimum, there are cost shifts both ways. There are benefits Mm -hmm. for non-solar households. And that is is the emerging consensus in a list of these uh, cost-benefit findings. So because the utility companies are now, uh, because they don't have to produce as much electricity from uh, from fossil fuel uh, uh, power plants and so forth, uh, they can lower... Reduction in generation needs, uh, availability of peak uh, energy at at, uh, particular times, possible uh, reduction of need for capital investment, possible need for less generation or, or... fewer generation investments. So there are very real benefits to mm-hmm. the overall system from having, uh, at least at this level of, of penetration, uh, having households handling their own generation. You know, and I think that that may not be true at, you know, much higher uh, penetrations, but we're not there yet. Y- so you- yeah, that the main argument is that uh, from the utility is that, that there is this shift to non-solar uh, households does not look like it's borne out by credible cost-benefit analysis. Uh, no, it doesn't. And you detail a lot of these uh, reports that have been commissioned around the country by states to look at this matter to figure out the cost-benefit analysis. Uh, and, there, and there's a chart, by the way, that you include in your paper showing Nevada solar uh, just unbelievable chart because it, the the solar customers, solar, new uh, solar purchases and so forth, go over a cliff in 2016 after this policy was put in place out there and after the state saw huge increases uh, over the past year in in uh, in solar installations in 2015. This chart is actually amazing. And you add, you go on to write that in 2014, a study commissioned by the Nevada Public Utility Commission itself concluded that net metering provided $36 million in benefits to all NV Energy customers, confirming that solar energy can provide cost savings for both solar and non-solar customers alike. So if that is true, Mark Muro of the Brookings Institution... What the hell is going on here? Uh, you know, we the, uh, we covered you know the Nevada situation, the close ties the uh, lobbyists, uh, the electric, uh, the utility uh, lobbyists have with the governor out there. Uh, but now we're talking, you know, Democratic California, where this bill to solve this problem has suddenly been pulled. What's going on here? Who's pulling these strings in both the Republican and some Democratic-controlled states, as far as you can figure? Well, I, you know, I, I won't speculate, uh, you know, about uh, the mechanics of, of, of what's going on. I think, you know, I think there are challenges in the classic utility model and the standard typical relationship of the utility to its ratepayers that are, you know, challenged by uh, rooftop generation. Mm-hmm. So I think 
it's pretty clear that some of the utilities are not comfortable with those challenges and that there are legitimate challenges to their economic model, which is going to you know, need to change. By the same token, rate net metering is not an ideal tool. It is a relatively simple, blunt instrument mm-hmm. to maintain uh, rooftop progress. Uh, we think it's net needed temporarily, but over time, we have much more complicated issues to get to that will you know, allow a legitimate utility uh, business to operate while providing for uh, choice by, among ratepayers and the continued reform of the overall system to make sure that it is ultimately delivering clean energy uh, in flexible uh, ways. So I think there there is clearly a challenge to the standard uh, utility business model that is going to need to be worked out. Now, I think one lesson here yeah. is don't try and change, don't change the policy in one rate setting decision with no transition. Because if you do, you are going to send a chill throughout the entire system. And really, nationally, we're seeing questions have been planted in a lot of solar uh, purchasers' minds about the stability of their purchases and the stability of the environment they're coming into. Uh, so I think we're going to need you know, a transition to updated models, and, and we have to be very careful on that front. And, and there may be, uh, and I want to ask you about these in a moment, uh, some of those better solutions even than net metering out there. But uh, two points I want to hit. One is uh, you write in your report that prices for solar panels have fallen dramatically. Residential solar installations surged during 2014 and 2015 by 66%, helping to ensure that solar accounted for 30% of all new U.S. electric generating capacity. And for that matter, you write, uh, recent analyses conclude that the cost of residential solar is often comparable to the average price of power on the utility grid, known as a threshold known as grid parity. What does grid parity mean here? Why is it important? And and how close is solar to achieving it, at least, uh, you know, before uh, people seem to be throwing all these blockades in the way? Well, grid parity is the... Uh degree, the cost factor for uh, generated uh, solar that allows it to compete directly without subsidy with uh, other sources. One of the kind of ironies here is, in many respects, uh, we're seeing a, a incredible story of technical and business model uh, innovation that is driving the cost of solar down rapidly and has been driving incredible gains uh, in deployment over the last decade. So it's ironic that we're running into this problem, you know, at that a time mm-hmm. of such momentum. The what's not ironic and or what is and what is really not surprising is that momentum may be raising questions uh, in more utilities' minds about where this goes. And I think they're not wrong that widespread, incredibly cheap solar on the rooftop uh, really does challenge the standard model. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, and you know, and I, so there are there are very there are serious issues to be worked out here, you know, but canceling net metering and not grandfathering in existing uh installations is not one of the 
correct response. No, it's not. And I've long said that as soon as people begin to realize that, oh, there is all of this free energy falling from the skies, uh, it's going to freak out a lot of people. It's going to change a lot of business models. And I think we may be in the the middle of that uh, freak out, if you will. Uh, You find, as a matter of fact, in your paper, that a lot of these net metering customers are receiving less money than they should, that in fact, uh, what they're doing is worth a lot more to these uh, to these utility companies. And uh, so even in the best states, solar companies may be getting less than what they deserve? Uh, in some cases, um, you know, I think I think the real issue now is and and uh, you know working out a new model for the utility that comp- that aligns with what society needs from the utility while providing for the rapid and and substantial uh, integration of uh, renewable. If uh, with the the problems that we, we've discussed in Nevada and, and Palm Springs and so forth with uh, net metering uh, and elsewhere around the country, would all of that sort of just be solved if we put a price uh, on pollution, if there was a cost associated with polluting the atmosphere with carbon, you know, a, a carbon tax or even a cap and trade market that actually made it, uh, you know, that, that, it, that it actually cost polluters to pollute. Would that be a mechanism that, that sort of leveled well, the playing field here? It, it would solve a lot of our problems, but it wouldn't resolve the question of directly of what the utility model should be. You know, and I think Utilities are going to exist. We're going to need to figure out, uh, you know, how what their contribution is, and I think it will require, you know, taking into account wider array of values, uh, including, uh, you know, the delivery of uh, stable, uh, clean, uh, and nimble uh, energy system. But so, so I don't think a carbon tax in itself will resolve the kind of problem that we're going to be ha- seeing uh, as we, we struggle to work out the utility model. Well, I think one of the problems, and this is cited in the uh, Desert, uh, Desert Sun article, uh, the, the staff of the Imperial Irrigation District out there had recommended uh, taking on more net metering customers, essentially. But the uh, the board, the district's board of directors rejected the plan four to zero earlier this month. And board member Stephen Benson uh, is quoted saying that he has, quote, a problem with the idea of solar. He says, if we dropped all tax credits and everything else, solar would go away. He said, that's where I stand. He said, I'm up for re-election in December. Uh, Once again, his name is Stephen Benson. He says, I'm up for re-election in December. You can vote me in or vote me out. Is there any truth to Stephen Benson's claim uh, that uh, solar doesn't really hold its own, that it's being propped up by all of these tax credits and so forth? Uh Every year, it be, he become, that becomes uh, less and less true. Uh, you know, we've just seen that currently in uh, 2016, you know, solar, uh, rooftop solar still is dependent on you know, tax as well as uh, utility uh, uh, regulatory structures. Uh, so that's true you know, for now, but I think the kind of year-over-year, both technical uh, 
another uh, uh, progress that is being made is hastening the day where where uh, solar can compete uh, straight up. And, and he so also all of this is you know I think part, the part of the backdrop here is that there is a a real challenge to the standard business model uh, of the utilities in. Uh, uh, solar. And he also overlooks the fact that uh, the fossil fuel industry also enjoys uh, tax credits and subsidies and so forth. And I, I think that's mm-hmm. not uh, included in his claim. So, you know, I, I'm I'm wondering if a lot of the uh, the problem here in moving forward with solar is going to be people like this clinging to this old model uh, that, you know, has been in place for so many decades at this point. Uh, Mark Miro, what is the solution? How how, what do solutions look like, and how do we move this uh, move this ball forward instead of freaking out the entire industry yeah. that was had been doing so well over the past few years? Well, yeah. The, well, the first priority is do no harm, and that means, as in most regulatory uh, issues, don't take radical steps, build in transition time, mm-hmm. and think about where you're trying to go over time. And what we've just seen is a not particularly well thought out short term reaction that's you know chilled an industry in one state and is and has slowed installations nationally by raising questions. So you know that is uh, not the correct approach. Otherwise, we need to have a serious discussion that takes into account the very real possibility that solar installation will occur fast enough to destabilize the current utility model. And so we need to figure out what the utility should be doing, what choices with what incentives households should have to choose their own energy sources, and then what are uh, the goals of of, uh, society uh, in energy. So we we think that we need to move to a more performance-based utility rate-making model that is about achieving Goals such as system resilience, affordability, uh, the integration of renewables, uh, and make it profitable for the utility to pursue optimal solutions that draw in all of these interests. And, you know, we're seeing those kind of discussions occurring in New York, for instance. Uh, So ultimately, we're going to move to a model where the utility doesn't just run a business by maximizing the pumping of certain electrons. It's about delivering certain values for society. Uh, And so the incentives are going to need to be worked out. There is a possibility of having potentially too much solar at a given moment. So we need to be taking into account the moment, the time of day. Uh, We're going to need to have a smart grid, and we're going to have to invest in that that allows for uh, the integration of these resources a lot of work needs to be done, and, you know, that needs... So I think the PUCs need to become much more serious about long-term uh, planning, and and they should be seeking information that doesn't just come from their mm-hmm. uh, regulated utility. And you know, I think... And, yeah. and I think uh, consumers also need to become more educated about what what is going on in their system. And yeah. I know you can't say it, Mark Muro, but but I will. Uh, folks like uh, Nevada Republican Governor Brian Sandoval, uh, Democratic uh, California Appropriations Committee Chair Lorena Gonzalez of San Diego, uh, and uh, this guy, this 
Stephen Benson, board member of the Imperial Irrigation District. I have no idea what party he is. These people need to be held accountable. And frankly, uh, if they don't uh, start working for the people, uh, they need to be voted out of office, if you ask me, no matter what party they're with. Mark Muro, a fascinating and important study. I'd encourage people to read it over at brookings.edu. The name of the new study is Rooftop Solar Net Metering is a Net Benefit. Uh, love to help get the word out on that, and thanks for all the good work you're doing there, Mark. Great talking to you, sir. Great. Thanks so much, Brad. Take care. You bet. Take care. Mark Muro of the Brookings Institution, Senior Fellow and Policy Director of the Metropolitan Policy Program there. You can follow his work at brookings.edu and on the Twitters at Mark Muro. One. That's the number one. Okay, a quick break, and we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report and Donald Trump's amazing explanation for the drought that he says doesn't exist out here in California and maybe a, a, a quick uh, listener mail or two. You're listening to the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to help keep us going. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. And thanks. Melting for Desi Doyen and the Green News Report here on the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, boy, we take just a couple of days off, Des. <laughs> and, and stuff happens. And stuff happens. And uh, then we spent, we, you know, it, it take like a two or three days off. And then we spend a week trying to catch up with everything we missed on those two or three days. I've got so much I've got to get to. Well, you know what? That's what the next Bradcast is for. In the meantime... You did a hell of a job trying to keep up with Donald Trump in our latest Green News Report. How bad is the drought? There is no drought. Donald Trump versus reality in energy and water speeches in California. Activist shareholders fail to get oil companies to address climate change. Record rains and flash floods in Houston. Good news for fish in the Arctic. Plus... Well, in the past... 14 years, we've seen Lake Mead drop by about 120 feet. Las Vegas water supply hits new record low. Bad odds for Vegas. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Well, I hate to talk about Donald Trump. He wants to cancel the Paris climate agreement, wants to build the Keystone Pipeline, wants to go back to burning coal and drilling oil as opposed to solar energy. Uh, I, I'm guessing he hates Mother Nature because she's a woman. Well, <laughs> uh, Sounds about right. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, you had a day or two off uh, over the holidays. I'm sure nothing happened. <laughs> 
that you need to, uh, to that you need to catch up with on today's show. <laughs> well, turns out you're wrong. What? While we were out, you may have heard that presumptive GOP presidential nominee Donald Trump gave an energy policy speech at a petroleum industry conference in North Dakota last week. It turned out to be the same old Republican energy wish list. You will become and stay totally independent of any need to import energy from the OPEC cartel or any nations hostile to our interests. We're going to revoke policies that impose unwarranted restrictions on new drilling technologies. We're going to cancel the Paris Climate Agreement. Bloomberg News quoted energy experts calling Trump's speech utter nonsense that demonstrated, quote, a lack of basic knowledge about how the energy industry and markets actually work. And that was the high point of that speech. Trump says he will protect clean air and water by removing environmental protections, and he'll preserve our natural resources by extracting them as fast as possible. (laughs) He recycled decade-old myths about solar and wind. At least he believes in recycling. And although he didn't say the words climate change, he did promise to rescind Obama's new standards for greenhouse gas emissions. Now, we don't have time to debunk everything in this speech, but suffice to say, for one thing, that while it's true that wind turbines do kill some birds, tall buildings kill more. That and house cats and fossil fuels kill 2,000 times more birds every year than wind turbines. You mean tall buildings like, say, the Trump Tower? Exactly. Imagine that. In a speech in Fresno the next day, Trump gave Californians a good laugh. I just left 50 or 60 farmers in the back and they can't get water. And I say, how tough is it? How bad is the drought? There is no drought. They turn the water out into the ocean. And I said, I've been hearing it. And I spent a half an hour with them. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe because it's not true. That's right. In reality, California is in its worst drought in recorded history because of low rainfall. Now, unless he decides to make it rain somehow, he does have a tidy solution. If you deny there's a problem... There's no problem. And you mean, so we don't have a drought because they're pushing the water out to sea? Apparently. Uh, They're just shoving it out to the sea. That's actually what he said. Yep. I said, oh, that's too bad. Is it a drought? No, we have plenty of water. I said, what's wrong? Well, we shove it out to sea. Amazing. At separate shareholder meetings for ExxonMobil and Chevron last week, activist shareholders failed in their bids to get the oil companies to account for and address their contribution to climate change. Exxon CEO Rex Tillerson said, quote, The world is going to have to continue using fossil fuels, whether they like it or not. And they don't like it because it's killing the world. More record rains and deadly floods in Houston. This round of storms obliterated that city's all-time one-day record for rainfall, 17 inches in less than 24 hours, triggered flash floods, and overwhelmed Houston's flood system and killed at least six people. But it's too little water in Nevada. Lake Mead, behind the Hoover Dam, supplies water for more than 25 million people in seven states. It's hit a new all-time record low because of drought and overuse from rapid development, according to Bronson Mack of the Southern Nevada Water Authority. The past 14 years, we've seen Lake Mead drop by about 120 feet. Uh, the lake went from full to now just under half full. Well, that's because they're shoving it all out to sea. Well, if it continues into next year, Arizona and Nevada will be forced by law to take water cuts.
Finally, some good news. Big seafood suppliers struck a major deal last week with the commercial fishing industry to stay out of a pristine region of the Arctic. Suppliers like McDonald's, Tesco, Birdseye, and Europe's largest frozen fish processor have agreed they will not expand industrial fishing operations into untouched Arctic cod fishing grounds. What a McShame. No, that's a McVictory. I'm loving it. For all of those McVictories and more, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyle. And this has been your Green News Report. Loving it. Thank you, Desi Doyen. <laughs> Greatly appreciated. Uh, as I said, we've, we've been running behind, so we haven't even had time to report what's going on in Europe uh, over the past few days. These deluge of, uh, of water falling from the sky. We'll try to get to that on tomorrow's uh, broadcast, if possible. Got a lot to get to tomorrow. I want to get one quick uh, listener mail in. This is from Sarah E., in response to our program yesterday, she writes to bradcast at bradblog.com. Hi, Brad. Let's talk about a different California primary contest that has been overshadowed by the presidential primary, and that's Barbara Boxer's Senate seat, which is up for grabs, and I've hardly seen any coverage on this. She writes, uh, here's an important point. There are 34 names on the ballot but only 21 candidates have a statement appearing in the official voter's guide. Now, people need to know out here in California, other than the presidential primary, all the candidates now run in a single primary together. So everyone trying to fill uh, Barbara Boxer's U.S. Senate seat, Republicans, Democrats, Green Party, Peace and Freedom Party, American Independent Party, they all run together, and whoever gets the, the, the top two vote-getters in that contest will then go on to the... Uh, November general election. Sarah E. writes, as it turns out, uh, candidates are charged $25 a word for their statements in the official voter's guide. Wow. I had no idea. The well-funded campaigns are the only ones with full paragraph statements in that guide. She says a 240-word paragraph costs $6,000. This would automatically push the candidates who don't accept campaign contributions over the FEC cap of $5,000. The fee for just getting on the ballot is uh, $3,480. This guide is paid for by the taxpayer and is crucial to informing voters about their choices. She says it's totally undemocratic. The candidates without deep pockets are not included in that voter guide. I agree. Yeah, that perpetuates Uh, the big money. Yep. She said, I spend hours upon hours researching every name on my ballot to find the candidate I want to support. John Parker of the Peace and Freedom Party is my guy, and I wouldn't have known that from the guide because he's not in it. I hope everyone has the chance to research this long list of candidates before Tuesday because the official voter's guide is woefully incomplete. Thanks, Brad. You are awesome. Well, I agree with her on that last point. But uh, other than that, I have no idea who John Parker of the Peace and Freedom Party is. But if he's not in the voter's guide, he's running. He's on the on the ballot. He paid the money. Uh, And uh, Sarah E., our listener, says that uh, he's her guy. So take that. Make of that whatever you will. I had no idea uh, that they had to pay twenty five dollars a word 
to appear in the voter's guide. Man, undemocratic indeed. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, uh, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to Mark Muro of the Brookings Institution, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, you can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Or find and follow me and uh, call me anything you like on the Facebooks and the Twitters where I am simply the Brad Blog. All right, that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Everyone.